Mexican elections. Byron Lopez will have a book review and we'll talk about what it's like to be black in Germany. My name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. I'll be your host today. Let's get started. So, Byron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Brandon. That's what I like to hear. So what book are we reviewing today? Well, today we're reviewing uh, Mexican Anarchism After the Revolution by uh, Donald C. Hodges. Exciting. Yes. So what, what's, what's the gist of the book? Well, it's, uh, it's mainly an overview of uh, the anarchist movement within Mexico uh, post the post-revolutionary era. So from... Uh, from like 1916, 17, when the revolution officially ended, uh, up to the ni- uh, the late 90s. Oh, okay. So it's rather is it rather comprehensive? It, I would say yeah. It covers all the all the major points um, and all the kind of weirdness that happens that that kind of happened to anarchism after the, the revolution and the end of the official anarchist. Uh, organizations like the uh, Partido Liberal Mexicano, the Mexican Liberal Party, um, kind of dissolved um, during the revolution. Um, and kind of the weird kind of entryism and kind of backstage organizing that anarchists had to do during the uh, PRI regime. Interesting. Okay, well, can you give me a little background, a little bit of the historical context? Because I know very little about Mexican anarchism. Yeah. Um, well, with Me- Mexican anarchism is much like anarchism anywhere that isn't uh, the West. You know, it became propped up at you know the exact same time. It kind of created its own influence, its own uh, adapted to its own situations. And in Mexico, uh, anarchism really came about in two separate organizations: the uh, Partido Liberal Mexicano, the Mexican uh, Mexican Liberal Party. And the House of the World Worker, um, which is an anarcho-syndicalist organization, uh, while the PLM was the anarcho-communist organization. Now, the PLM was led was uh, essentially led by the uh, Flores Magón brothers, uh, with primarily led uh, who themselves were led by Ricardo Flores Magón, who was, who was who was the Kropotkin of Mexico. But he spent most of his time in exile in the United in the southwestern United States because. Uh, you know, Perfidio Diaz, or later on the Institutional Revolutionary Party of Mexico, would hunt him down and do their best to make sure he doesn't rise up, like he, he doesn't influence their politics. Now, uh, Flores Magón and the House of the World Worker they worked to spread anarchist ideas in Mexico and kind of, and, and I would honestly say, and Hodges kind of agrees with me in the book, without the Mexican Liberal Party and without the House of the World Worker. And the influence they had in Mexican – in the opposition in Mexico to the Partido 
Porfirio Diaz uh, dictatorship, there probably would have been no revolution to begin with. Uh, they were very much the avant-garde. They were pushing uh, the kind of the barrier of political thought in Mexico and were really the, the the more radical, the more militant, the people who were willing to take up, you know, you know, pick up their machete, pick up their rifle and like and go and shoot their local army officers. Um, but sadly, during the revolution, uh, due to a lack of political education and defections and just an in, uh, a lack of and, and, and actually outright betrayal, um, the House of the World Worker ended up uh, allying itself with the constitutionalists, like the with the uh, with the centrists, mm. and would outright uh, send military units to kill um, Zapata and Villa's army, like uh, armies. Like they, it's it's one of the biggest betrayals in anarchist history, um, and it really should be a whole other thing in and of itself that I hopefully we can talk about later. But after that, it the after the exile, the PLM and the eventual betrayal of the House of World Worker by their supposed by their newfound allies, um, it, it, anarchism really stopped being a, a an overt political force and more of a background influence on the rest of Mexican society, as seen with uh, Zapata, with uh, you know with Zapatism and with uh, and with Villa in the north. Again, they sadly were eventually killed. Villa was able to go into retirement. Where he was eventually assassinated after a few de- like after two decades, uh, Sabata was ambushed in, in a canyon and killed during uh, you know during the actual civil war. And again, anarchism just stopped having an influence really in Mexican politics until uh, a few anarchists got together and created the crafty idea of infiltrating. Um, entering the Mexican Communist Party, which had arisen at this time after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. Now, the PCM, the Partido Comunista Mexicano, mm-hmm. is it's a weird situation because it's kind of, I personally think the only time like anarchists have been successfully able to entry a, a, a Marxist-Leninist political party. Where is anarchism in Mexico today? Well, it's it's mainly in the cities. It's in the south, um, and it's with the uh, Zapatistas in Chiapas. Now, the Zapatistas are a weird example because they're not like most anarchists don't consider them anarchists, but they definitely have the a very much a libertarian Marxist um, structure that is very anarchist influenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, because they are very heavily influenced by Zapata, who was like who was himself. Um, had many anarchist lieutenants um, who came who were who came from the north from the PLM when the PLM was uh, destroyed. Interesting. So this book, which obviously has a lot of history in it, yeah, it's a lot of. I'm 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 squeezing everything down to the purest info right oh, now. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, hell, this you forget more what happened than you can possibly, you know, cover in a podcast. Yeah. Where do you feel as though it's missing a little something? It's not being covered. Well, for one, I feel like well, one of the more blatant issues is that this only goes up to like nineteen, like the late nineties. Like the Zapatistas were a new and interesting thing that just popped up in Mexico at the time that this uh, book was like finished. Um, the author was were able to write a little bit of stuff. 
um, before uh, publishing, but it, it really doesn't go into the organizing structure of the Zapatistas and Chiapas and kind of the pushback from uh, the Mexican state um, after the uprising. Um, so there, there's that clear issue of it's just a matter of timing um, and just the pers- and the time frame of the book. Another one could be very much the the fact that the writer is himself not an anarchist. He actually interviewed a lot of anarchist veteran, like you know, like a lot of uh, veteran anarchists, um, mm-hmm. friends he knew, uh, people who knew through his friends, and it's very much coming from a secondhand account. Uh, but also because of that, he may occasionally. There's parts in the book where I personally like he would describe this person as an anarchist, um, even though they were not, they didn't identify as anarchist. They didn't even have that much anarchist. Like, yeah, there was some influences from anarchism, but like, I would not personally consider them an anarchist, like even remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, more of a, you know, orthodox Marxist or something like that, but not an anarchist. Yeah, because they're they because you know mainly like more like a kind of like a minarchist. Like they want minimal government, but not but not no government. Okay, fair enough. So. On a scale of one to five, five being explosive, the best, and one being not really effective and kind of insulting, where would you put this book? I would put it at 4.5. 4. If you want a, a really good overview of Mexican anarchism, uh, you know, after you know, after Zapata and after Villa and after Ma, Flores Magón. Um, it's it's a really good book. Of course, there, there's issues where he, you know the author kind of very loosely uses the term anarchist to kind of and attributes it to a lot of people who it normally shouldn't be attributed to. But if you can kind of overlook that, uh, it's it's a really good intro into Mexican. It's a radical Mexican politics from from a libertarian left perspective. Awesome. So, what's the name of this book again? Uh, Mexican Anarchism After the Revolution by Donald C. Hodges. All right, Byron Lopez, thank you for your time. Um, thank you. So here on the Movement of Color podcast, we like to give voice to those who are actively in the fight. And Kofi Shakur is one of those individuals. He is an African activist based in Germany, and a few months ago, Dalletta Scruggs had the pleasure of interviewing him. So here is a segment of that interview. Enjoy. Can you tell us about this right-wing political party in Germany called Alternative for Germany Party? Yeah, um, they started a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, and when they started, it was like, they're basically a party of like old white professors, like old rich people. And when they started, they had a different, like kind of different basis. They were, were like um, skeptical of the euro, of Europe, and they want like they had these um, like we have to get rid of the euro, or we should like um, Greece should uh, like um, leave the eurozone, and like all this um, financial politics, like a neoliberal financial politics mm-hmm. which they like they had the foundation of being like economists and like, mm-hmm. like somehow experts like mad old experts mm-hmm. and it 
somehow changed. Like they, during the um, Pegida uh, protests, they somehow became the party to canalize the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant um, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So they somehow became the electoral um, arm of this um, of this movement, of this racist movement. Mm -hmm. So um, they they also like they split up, and part of the old like normal right wing uh, liberal neoliberal. Um, um, People they just split off and now it's like an openly racist, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim party which has like good connections to organized neo-Nazi structures and like their. I mean, it's also their kind of strategy to like to provoke on like mm -hmm. on Facebook or Twitter or in their speeches. They always like they say they say stuff that's pretty much racist and openly mm -hmm. racist, mm -hmm. just like to provoke and to. To be in, like, also in the media, mm -hmm. they want to, they want to um, reshape the, the discussion in, in the public in Germany. In a place like Germany, which has a history of obviously a brutal fascist uh, dictator, Hitler, that came to power, um, how serious do people of color, do immigrants take uh, openly racist organizations or groups um, and, and Nazi uh, organizations? Like, how, how serious is that threat taken in, in Germany and how worried are people of color? People are afraid, of course, mm -hmm. but they're also, like, organizing. So, that, like, it's, it's not just, it's not, not just, like, people are afraid and um, mm -hmm. want to leave Germany. Like, it's not, it's not a mass phenomenon, but, like, the situation is getting tense and you definitely feel like not so like I don't know uh, how much people feel like Germany is their home but like it's it's less like that um, since since last election so mm -hmm. Police brutality has been an important discussion particularly among youths of color can you talk about the movement to fight against police brutality in Germany, in particular this case uh, of Ojello, who was a victim of police violence? Um, he was a refugee from Sierra Leone, and he came to Germany. And like um, in Germany, when like refugees basically have to go to this um, to to the district, um, the state sends them to so you like if you come to Germany and apply for asylum you just have to go somewhere don't matter if you know people there or where you if you know people in Germany where they live you just have to maybe you yeah, you have to go to Bavaria and some 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 shelter and then live there for the next years or whatever so, and he was in a, in a place um, called Dessau which is a, like it's a small town it's um, it's not like um, there's not much to do there, so, um, but there were like some, some black people, like also refugees, and so he had like, he had friends and they were a community, and on one evening, like he was, he was um, on his way, and the, like the story is, um, and it isn't like, it isn't really clear um, what ha happened exactly, but like, um, the police said like he he um, like harassed some women or like they 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 felt unsafe so they called mm -hmm. the police so that's that's the one thing 
um, they felt threatened somehow by him. And the next thing is like he was um, he was um, put in chains and uh, taken into police custody, and then he was put into a cell and um, he was like um, fixated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on on an like inflammable mattress, and they just left him there. And someone like there was like um, a situation which just was like it. it um, they talked about it in court. It was not like um, there was um, smoke developing, and somehow like there's smoke in the police um, department, and they just like shut the, shut the door or whatever. So. Um, it didn't. It, like it took. It took a few hours um, until until one 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 guy um, called the fire department, and when they arrived, he was already burned. So the explanation that the police gave was that a man who was handcuffed in his cell somehow set himself on fire and was allowed to burn for hours before any emergency response personnel were called. Yeah, somehow, like, somehow no one noticed anything, like, wow. not not really anything, um, and there was something just, like, um, like a month ago in the news that one guy wanted to talk about something in court, like, he, want to, he wanted to, um, to say something, and instead of that, like, um, his boss just tell, like, tell him to shut up, you know, so... Even if people want to talk about something, they're being like, um, yeah, somehow shut down from their from their bosses. So it's like the whole the whole justice system, the whole legal system is um, somehow sabotaging the whole case. What economically? What has been the situation? Um, in places like Germany, are we seeing a decline in living standards? Are, has there been decline in jobs? Um, and particularly, how is this affecting uh, black and brown people and, and immigrants that are coming to the country? Most of the young people, like people from my generation, are also a bit older, but also like younger. Like we don't know anymore what a, what like having a normal job is. You know, like mm-hmm. having a job. Work like forty hours per week, and you have this job like five, six, seven years or for your lifetime. Like that's that's just like uh, like stories that our parents can tell maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> like work is getting more precarious, mm-hmm. and you like you work at different places, and um, often not really full time. And even maybe even if you work full time, it isn't enough to like to feed your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, young people basically have no real future, you know? There is a rise in understanding of racism and how that's at play, but there's not a rise of class consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about what do you mean by class consciousness and how that relates to the racism that we're seeing today and all throughout history that we've seen? Yeah, I think like... um Class, class, class consciousness. <laughs> class consciousness means um, that um, we recognize that we belong to a certain class in society, and that like most of the problems we have are because of that. So I think like class consciousness means understanding that like we all share 
a certain fight that unites us, we have to target racism and sexism and, um, and, and fight for the oppressed people, you know? Like, um, because there's not only, like, there's not only um, racism and sexism within, like, within the colleagues, but also, like, from, from the bosses, like, mm -hmm. like, sexism, like, I think every woman, uh, like, all women who, who work, no matter where, like, no matter if, like, if in the industry or if, if uh, like, um, uh, in, like, in a hotel or restaurant or even in science, all women experience sexism from their bosses. So we can also, like, show how organizing against the bosses means organizing against sexism. Um, and same goes for racism, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Kofi, how can people follow you and the activism that you're doing in Germany around uh, anti-racism campaigns? I'm active on social media, on Facebook. You can find my profile as, like, Kofi Shakur. It's, like, most of the stuff I post is, like, um, public. And I write articles, but uh, mostly in German. So, um, Klassegegen Klasse. That's, like, I try to... Um, I try to bring back some of the like knowledge, which was like the points really to to organize and to to educate yourself and other people about racism and sexism and, and capitalism, of course. Um, and that's like that's why why I'm like why I try to study people like that. Well, Kofi, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Again, you all can follow Kofi on Facebook, Kofi Shakur. Uh, do you have a Twitter profile? No, just strictly not, no. Facebook. Okay, you're like me. I don't. I don't have all these pages. I can't remember all the logins. All right, so definitely uh, follow Kofi, Kofi Shakir on Facebook, um, and definitely uh, thank you so much for your time. And we stand in solidarity, solidarity, and we'll definitely be on the lookout uh, for what's happening in Germany. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. You're welcome. Thank you too. Byron, how are you doing today? I'm um, doing good. It's not raining. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so we were talking about the Mexican elections that are going on currently. So what's happening with that? Um, I think the best and most concise way to describe the elections right now is an absolute clusterfuck. Um, so currently there are three main coalitions of political parties that are putting up candidates uh, to become the next Mexican president in 2018. There is uh, Mexico for Everyone, which includes the PRI, the Institutional uh, Revolutionary Party, which is a centrist party. Um, the Greens, who are a green conservative, like a conservative green party Weird. and then new alliance which is a more bit of the line liberal party um next is uh for mexico to the front which includes the pan the Act national action party which is a kind of their version of the tories like a a conservative a pretty you know somewhat socially liberal um conservative party the prd the institution uh, revolutionary uh, democratic revolutionary party which is a kind of a democratic uh, a social democratic party 
and then uh, the citizens movement, which is more of a social liberal, uh, kind of a mix between social democracy and more mainstream liberalism. And then lastly, kind of the to the big one is uh, together we will make history, which includes a Morena, which is uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's personal party, uh, the Labor Party, which is more of a Venezuelan socialism for the 21st century kind of party, and then lastly, in a weird twist, uh, Social and Counter Party, which is a right to far right wing Christian evangelical anti like very reactionary on social grounds party. <laughs> and those are the main three. Wow. That's a, that's a, those are all interesting coalitions. Yeah. The, the PR, the PRI coalition makes a lot of sense, but everything else is kind of. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah. It's, it's mainly due to historical stuff more than ideological lines. And that's kind of how it's always been in Mexico. Um, Mexico politics is more based on personality than any actual real ideological consistency, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you could say. So who are the front runners? So the front runner, uh, front runner uh, just by a pretty long while, uh, mile is uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, AMLO for short, um, AMLO's uh, coalition um, – being led by Morena, which is together we will make history. I think they're ahead by like 10 points uh, in front of the next uh, coalition. Wow. So the, so what's AMLO's story? What, what makes him special this time around? So AMLO is a pretty interesting guy because he's kind of been – like he's been nominally called recently the Bernie Sanders of Mexico. But like that's a pretty terrible description. It's, it's, it's incredibly inaccurate, uh, mainly because of his history. So – uh, AMLO started off um, in the PRI, like most people, in the left wing of the PR of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, mm-hmm. um, which had a pretty free, free famous left wing. But eventually, after the '88 uh, pri- uh, '88 pre-primary, where uh, Cuauhtémoc uh, Cárdenas, son of Lazarus Cárdenas of the 1940s, of 1940s, had uh, his candidacy he stolen by the kind of uh, you know by the lanyards of the party. So he left to form the PRD, the Revolutionary Democratic Party, which is a more social democratic – used to be more Demsoc, but now it's just more – it's kind of moderated a good bit yeah. um, in 98. And he's been – and AMLO has been with them and up until 2012, kind of as a rising star um, after uh, Guatemoc Cardenas kind of went into the back – kind of moved to the back of the party. Um, he took up the mantle of – the head personality of the party. He even became uh, head of government, which is their version of governor of uh, the uh, federal district of Mexico, which is their version of DC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he would con- he would constantly lose. Sometimes due to election fraud, other times due to just being a shitty campaigner and just not, you know, just it just not being the right time. Yeah. Until um, so he eventually left uh, in 2012. To form his own party called Morena, which is his own personal party. The ideology of the party is whatever ideology he says so. Um, so it's very much like it, he is. It is very much the apotheosis of personality campaigning, um, Morena. So, what are some of the positions he's taking? Well, he's uh, well, like 
I, like in the great Mexican center left tradition, he's very much adopted a carna carnaism, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of the ideology of Lazarus Carnas of the pre, which is kind of based on um, land reform, uh, generally being for workers' rights, um, exploitation of natural resources by the state itself, a national a good like a. Eh, okay amount of nationalization something you would see from like the canadian ndp back when it was okay um and mm -hmm. not to the right of liberals yeah. um kind of kind of like that at least that's the official position um that he takes but it's more likely because of just the fact that he's constantly switching parties all the time that he's uh constantly switching like from the left to the central left um and sometimes even to the center um, he's very much it, – it's impossible to really pin down an ideology on this guy. Hence, the Mexican Bernie Sanders does not work. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. It, you know, Bernie Sanders is famous for his – for like not really changing his positions all that much. All that much. Uh, but like with – you know, with AMLO, he, he's constantly changing parties. He's constantly – making deals with like the far right evangelicals like, he, like he's doing in this one um who you know just as a side note like i i if, if it's okay i, I can uh, kind of explain a little bit who uh the social encounter party is yeah go for it that's okay with it yeah so the social encounter parties they're like a relatively new party uh they're like uh I, I get the best way i can describe them is mike pence if he was mexican Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, they're anti-choice. They're anti-LGBTQ. Um, they're actually the only Mex, the only party in Mexico, the only ones who have stated that they are um, for the colonization of the West Bank by Israel. They're in favor of it mm. because, again, these are evangelical Christians who are who fundamentally believe that they that the Jews need to take over all of it, like all of like Judea and Sumeria. And, and like bring in like bring, build a third temple like to bring in Jesus to like in order for Jesus Christ to come back you know like they fundamentally believe this um, very much a a weird reflection of evangelicals here in the United States yeah so like and, the and, the Mexican Pat Robertsons yeah and for some weird reason uh, Amlo decided to use them as his like third party that he's gonna bring into the coalition alongside the Labor Party who like. The Labour Party, I can kind of see working with him. They worked with him before, mm -hmm. um, but the Social Counterparty makes absolutely no sense. They're an incredibly small party that's really meaningless when it comes to like any actual numbers that he's going to bring in. It's incredibly dangerous because they're they are fundamentally at odds with like everything that an AMLO supporter would be in favor of, and like again, just to reiterate, they have like ten delegates. Like ten like delegates in like state houses, wow. <laughs> not even like the actual like Congress. Um, they're incredibly irrelevant, and Amlo, in his infinite wisdom, decided to kind of do a almost you know brown red brown alliance light uh, on us. Some weird third positionism thing going on. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, let's assume that. Hamlo, they, they, he wins. Is he going to bring any kind of change to Mexico? Could he bring change? I would kind of personally doubt it. Um, I have zero hopes that he's actually going to do anything 
substantial, maybe like at best he'll probably stop the uh the gas hikes um in Mexico's nationalized oil industry. Um he'll probably stop the privatization of it. Um but and like probably not do much other than that. When it comes to like social issues, um because of his weird alliance with the this far right party, I don't think he's going to really move any move anything when it comes to LGBTQ issues, when it comes to uh, you know, trans issues when it comes to uh, issues of, say, abortion. Um, and, and when it comes to foreign policy, Mex- he's fairly nationalistic. He's kind of talked support of Cuba and Venezuela. But I think now that he's kind of moderating a bit on his foreign policy, that support is going to kind of disappear the moment he becomes president. Interesting. Interesting. So we got a lot to watch. We got a lot of... Uh... We'll have to see how this develops. When is the the date of the Mexican election? Uh, yeah, so it's going to be on the first of July of this of uh, this year. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty close. Real close. Real close. And um, we'll see how Trump can fuck up that relationship. <laughs> Absolutely. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Awesome. Well. As always, um, Byron, it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for informing us, and we'll keep an eye out what's going to happen next. All right, I'll, I'll see you later. All right, so we come to the end of our episode today. Um, you guys can always follow us at Twitter at movement underscore color and also make the effort. Visit our Patreon site at patreon.com backslash movement of color. That would allow us to keep on coming up with fresh beats, fresh stories, and, you know, maybe allow me to get a sandwich or something. Anyway, thank you for your time. And we look forward to spending more time with you next week.